Before we get started, I forgot to mention during announcements that um, everybody in here knows that we've been searching for a youth minister since last February, March. Um, and I don't want you guys to think that we're not taking it seriously. We are taking it very seriously. There's been a lot of prayer, a lot of things going through. We've received uh, resumes, but we haven't found the person that we think is right to serve our church just yet. Um, so uh, tomorrow and Tuesday, I will actually be up at Harding University. Uh, they gave me an opportunity to speak to a few upper-level classes to tell them about you guys. Um, but what I want from you all is to take out your phone if you got it, and to make a reminder at some point tomorrow or Tuesday to please pray for this whole process. I know a lot of people in here have been praying, but prayer works. I talked to Rick last week, and he wanted me to make sure I told everybody in this room that prayer works. Okay, He's experienced it. I know everybody in this room has experienced it. But we need prayer over this matter, and we need to continue praying over this matter. Um, so I, I would like our entire church to kind of, if you want to be the all-star prayer warrior, you know, if that's what you're looking for, a gold star maybe, uh, you can even make on-the-hour prayers. Because every hour till from like 8 a.m. Central Time to 6 p.m. Central Time, I'll be standing in front of a whole bunch of people who might or might not be listening to me, okay? So prayer for open, open ears to hear this and, and to see what happens to see what God can do, and to continue pray for this process as we go through it together. Does that sound good? Yeah. Thumbs up? Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so um, <laughs> as you can see this morning, Saul's finally dead. And uh, this, this sermon series is coming to a close as well. And I think it's apt to title this last sermon, The, the Fall, because what, become, what comes before the fall? Pride. Let's say it together. Pride comes before the fall, right? But before we get there, I want to just briefly recap where we were last week. Last week, we talked about uh, this experience where David was kind of woken up from this nightmare of living with the Philistines, where he returns and he's got no home and no wives to, to see, and, and he has to do something about it. And eventually he goes and he, he takes care of the situation, and, and his family's returned to him, his men's family has returned to him. But what we really took away from last week was that we need to be givers of grace, right? We need to be givers of the grace that we receive ourselves and to even give grace abundantly. That was the word we used last week, to give beyond what we think we ought to give because that's the kind of grace we receive. And then we also talked about this idea of renewing our minds, talking about how Paul encourages us, not just encourages us, right, but tells us to not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but what? To renew your mind, right? To renew yourself, to see what God could be speaking into your life. So that was last week. Uh, hopefully you have uh, the ability to kind of go back to that. Maybe in your small group you talked about that. Our small group talked about that a lot. And hopefully it was a blessing to you. So let's just go ahead and jump in. This is our last chapter. First Samuel is coming to a close. A lot of you are clapping in your brains right now. Jimmy will stop talking about this for a minute. Um, but I hope it's been a blessing to you. And really my hope is that you've been able to approach this scripture and kind of be disarmed by it. I know a lot of us go into the Old Testament with these ideas of like, I'm not going to understand this. There's a whole lot of names and places. But if you can weed through those things, a lot of times God's saying the same thing to them that he's saying to us, just in different contexts. So I hope that you've been disarmed by this and your, your protection or your walls are, are, are torn down when it comes to your fear of the Old Testament. But let's, let's read this. And then we'll see what happens, where, where God's leading us this morning. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. 
The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Geboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malik Shua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. All right. It's kind of a weird conclusion to this whole story, right? It's, it's, this whole book has kind of been about Saul pursuing David, Saul doing the wrong thing before God. And we finally get to this end, and it's almost like anticlimactic. It's very climactic. I mean, if this was a movie, this would be a really cool scene. But the way that it's written, I think we're supposed to take something different away from it. Okay? It's very self-explanatory. I'm not going to go through it, you know, piece by piece. But really the bottom line is Saul can't pursue David anymore. And Saul is no longer the Lord's anointed. Right? His life is over. Something else is coming after. Let's continue reading here in 1 Samuel 31. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fighting at Mount Geboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs, his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bashan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them, and they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. So this gruesome ending, it's kind of fitting. It reminds me a lot of what we've already talked about through the entirety of 1 Samuel. Right? We have this, this battle take place, and there's a beheading that takes place. This should remind you of something that happened previously, kind of the big deal of 1 Samuel, right? Where David, he, he goes into battle against Goliath, and what does he do after he defeats Goliath? He beheads Goliath, right? So we have these kind of parallels to where Saul meets his fate and he's beheaded just like Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, meets his fate. He's beheaded. The weaponry of, of Goliath was taken away from him, right? He's taken, uh, his sword is taken, his, his, his armor is taken, and, and just like Saul's armor and weaponry is taken as well. And then they take not only his armor and weaponry, but they take Saul and they place him in the temple of their Asherahs. And I couldn't help but be reminded of when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. You remember this, right? A long time ago, like in October, maybe. Um, the, the Philistines, they took the Ark of the Covenant. And what, remember what they would do? They would take the Ark these different places. And that very first one in the temple of Dagon, do you remember what happened? It fell down at the Ark of the Covenant. And Every city that the ark would go, bad things would happen to the Philistines, right? And I'm kind of reminded of this because very similarly, Saul and his family, they're put in this temple. But guess what doesn't happen in those temples? Nobody's bowing before Saul. Nothing really bad is happening to the Philistines at this time. Like I said, this should be the most climactic part of the entire book, but what I'm kind of taking away from this is the anticlimax is actually the climax of the whole story. 
Saul was not God. Really, the Spirit of God departed from Saul. All these things that kind of remind us of things that happened earlier in 1 Samuel are not happening anymore with Saul. This is not the Lord's anointed. This is just a man. These are his sons. And, and unfortunately, his sons were way better than him, right? But it's the same kind of treatment there. The bodies are retrieved and they're taken care of, but let's not get it twisted. This is not the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is not God's presence among his people. This is Saul. His life has ended and his story is kind of over. But I want to be careful, again, how we talk about this. Because we cannot VBS-ify, right? I'm going to make up a word. VBS hyphen IFY Saul, right? Because a lot of times we talk about these bad guys of scriptures. We even sing songs about them. One of my favorite VBS songs about Pharaoh, you guys might know it. It's like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you, you let my people go, Hoo. Maybe you don't know it. It's a great song. But Pharaoh's the bad guy, and then we have all these kids like dancing around, singing a song, and I'm like, ah, he was also a guy, right? And I I don't want to do the same thing with Saul where where we can have him. Yeah, he wasn't a great guy, but he was a guy nevertheless, a very flawed human being. And I hope through all these studies, you've been able to look in the mirror and see a little bit of Saul in yourself as well. So we cannot just make him the bad guy. Yes, he technically is, but he's also a very flawed individual. He was exactly how David described him, right? Remember how David would always talk about Saul, right? He cannot lay his hand on who? The Lord's anointed. That is factually correct. And David gave him that honor, and and really God gave him that honor. So we cannot forget that at one point, this man was the Lord's anointed. At one point, this man was living a life that was somewhat decent before God. But along the way, he, he had some difficult times. And again, maybe you can see yourself in a similar light. Along the way, you have some difficult times. Along the way, you realize that I am a flawed man or I am a flawed woman, and I have these things going on in my life that are not perfect. Just like him, we can be the same way. And I want you to have that in your mind. I want you to think about Saul the individual as we kind of think about this question. Have you ever allowed pride to actually control your life? Everybody should be doing like this right now. (laughs) Have you ever allowed pride to control your life? Even the most humble of people can say, yes, at times I have allowed pride to control my life. I'm going to be vulnerable with you this morning. And I hope that encourages you to be vulnerable with each other as well. This is something uh, I I like to consider that, you know, I have a pretty good life. I I, I don't have much to complain about in my life, but there was a time, and there is still times that come up in my life where pride is a definite factor, especially when it comes to raising my kids. Um, My kids are a huge, huge part of just, I am very proud of my kids. But there's times when pride takes over, and it it happened a lot more when they were younger, uh, when maybe... This is just an example. When they would be acting up or something like that at a restaurant or at church or something, and I get the sideways glance from the older individual, it's like, are you going to control your kid? That glance. And then I get a wave of shame on my shoulders. I get a wave of, oh my goodness, my kids are being crazy right now, and it's all my fault. So then what does dad do? He goes over and he disciplines the kid, and, and sometimes that discipline and really doesn't make much sense. 
And, and I tell you these stories, and they're not specific stories because it happened plenty of times where I allowed other people's perspectives to control how I feel about a situation, especially when it comes to my kids. But guess what? A lot of times, those people giving me the sideways glances, they're wrong. But I allow their perception of a situation to control how I treat my kids. But really, the bottom line of it all is that I don't want people to think that I'm a bad dad. That's what it's all about. Because since my kids are acting out, that means that I am bad dad. We can all laugh at me here because that doesn't make much sense. Kids are kids. But in those moments, I allow my pride to speak to my children and not their father to speak to their children. Do you see what I'm saying? I allow other people's perception of a, of a situation to control how I feel and think and actually treat my kids. And sometimes I'm not good at that. An even more depraved version of this even happens in ministry. I'm glad Steve's here this morning. I've been at meetings with Steve where ministers get together and they talk about how good their ministry is. It is toxic. I will tell you, it's some of the most toxic conversations I've ever been a part of. Where people are literally trying to one-up each other with the ministry that they're doing in their areas. It makes me sick to my stomach to think about. How many people go to your church? How many are in your group? What kind of things are you doing? And sometimes it's genuine. I promise that sometimes it is genuine. But you can tell there's a little bit of pride when someone has more people or more ministries or more whatever than the other person in the room. It happens. In a ministry context, I say it's more deprived because we're trying to do the Lord's work. And I'm not trying to call anybody out for this. I promise I'm not trying to say I'm better than anybody at this at all. But what I'm saying is that pride can creep into those places where it has no business being. Pride has no business controlling how I discipline my children. Pride has no business being in the context of trying to one-up somebody else's ministry. But see, pride has a way of just cloaking itself in self-righteousness, cloaking itself in a way that we're not able to discover what it actually is. And the more I think about these prideful situations in my life, and I think about the prideful situations in Saul's life, you can see how dangerous it is. How dangerous pride can take you away from being who you want to be and who you're called to be. Because when I think about all this thing that we talked about in 1 Samuel, about, about Saul's life and David's life, I kind of get to this question here. What did God want from Saul? If we're going to think about Saul as an actual human being, if we're going to think about him making actual decisions, I think this is a question we have to ask ourselves and really keep ourselves accountable. What did you want from him in the first place, God? He never applied for this job. Remember, remember he was searching for his donkeys, right? He was literally looking for livestock, and then Samuel was directed to go anoint this guy king of Israel. That's crazy. That is an actual crazy thing that happened. And if you remember when Saul was interacting with Samuel, that God had to literally change his heart. Remember that? That God came and he changed Saul's heart. And there was a little period of time where Saul was doing a good job. And there were people following Saul. And actually, if you continue reading in 2 Samuel, there's more people still following Saul. Right? Because there was a brief moment of time where he was doing a good job. But I get back to this point he never applied for this position, and now he's being held to a standard that's incredibly high. Incredibly high. Can you imagine being in that situation? Imagine being this normal person to the Lord's anointed king. You have this spirit, you're prophesying. People are looking at Saul and they're saying, Wait, isn't this the son of Kish? 
Is he a prophet now? Like, what is this guy's deal? He's acting completely different. What did God want from Saul? He never applied for this job. To me, the one thing that God wanted from Saul, the one thing was that he wanted Saul to choose spirit over flesh. Remember, God changed his heart. God gave him the spirit. And God is saying, literally, here is a silver platter. I'm giving you this choice. Please choose spirit over flesh. And there were times where he was better than others. But ultimately, what did Saul choose? He chose the flesh. He chose to fulfill the things that he wanted to accomplish. He really ended up choosing pride. He ended up allowing situations and things and people to control the way that he operated in the world. He allowed his pride to be the the, the answerer of this question. He allowed it to choose flesh for him. And so this story gets a little personal here because I think if we really think about it, we're not so different from Saul, especially the people in here that have been baptized and received the Spirit. We can't look at Saul's life and not see ourselves. Because if you've been baptized, you've received the Holy Spirit, in a way, you are being held to a little bit higher of a standard. Because you know what God expects of you. You, you know that you have the indwelling of literally God within you. You have the opportunity to choose still, though, just like Saul had the opportunity to choose. Right in front of you on a silver platter, will you choose flesh or will you choose spirit? And unfortunately, flesh is very, very easy to choose, especially when pride, a little sprinkling of pride gets thrown into the mix. Then it becomes a lot easier to choose. So my question is, how can we choose spirit over flesh? How can we actually choose spirit over flesh? And when I was reflecting on all of really 1 Samuel this past week or so, and really this chapter, I couldn't help but think of of Micah. Micah 6.8. And now this happens long after. These words are spoken long after this whole situation, but I think it still applies, okay? Let's be very sure that we're aware of the context, okay? Micah wasn't holding hands with Saul, okay? I just want to make sure we're clear. But this is what Micah 6 says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So if we go back to this question, how can we choose spirit over flesh? It seems like these three things help us deny that flesh with force in a very direct way. So let's look at these three things together. We're still asking ourselves the question, just to be clear, how can we choose spirit over flesh? Micah 6.8 is kind of our framework for this. The very first thing that we need to recognize is that we need to seek justice. Let's say that together. Seek justice. This is, to me, really kind of another opportunity to deny pride, right? Because when you seek justice, hopefully you're not just seeking it for yourself because to seek justice means to seek justice for other people as well. To look around you, like we talked about this morning in our prayer, to look around you and see, how can I pray into this situation? How can I be a light into a very dark situation? This situation is unjust. How can I bring justice through the word of Christ into that situation? To seek justice gets yourself out of your own body and into the other person's shoes for a moment. 
When you look around and you see people who are disenfranchised, who do not have a voice, and you say, that's not fair, that's the Holy Spirit talking to you. I promise it is. When we seek justice, we're allowing the Spirit to move us and allowing our flesh to be in the back seat for a moment. To seek justice puts ourselves outside of our own flesh for a moment and to see the flesh around us. Because there's suffering in and around us at all times. And you're saying, Jimmy, you're asking me to care about the things that you care about. And what about all these other sufferings in the world? Guess what? There is no justice while we're on this side of earth. God knows justice. Because, let's pause for a second. If we truly were to seek justice, a whole lot of us would start looking like Batman. And that's not justice. Right? Because Batman justice says, I am the judge and jury, and I'm going to exact justice how I see fit. Guess what? None of us know what real justice looks like. But when we choose the Spirit, we're able to be directed in a more just way. We are not going to be perfect. And there are going to be times where there's going to be things that I care about that you don't care about. I promise there is. But when we collectively seek the justice of the Spirit, I think we can be enlightened in a different way. My prayer is that we can continue to seek justice, not only as individuals, but collectively as a church. Where are the people hurting? How can we speak into situations? How can we pray the Spirit is active? Look around you and see where there's no justice. And pray that you have the insight from God to see what true, what true justice can look like. What little we can do. Okay? The second, just like Micah says, is to love mercy. Again, this is a little bit like we talked about last week. There's not a great image or a a way to really express the amount of mercy that we receive on a daily basis. Right, last week we talked about a cup overflowing and you have that surface tension and you keep pouring water in, the water keeps flowing over. That's not even a great representation of the mercy and love we receive from Jesus. Even those who do not know God or do not know Jesus receive mercy on a daily basis. We just talked this morning in the teen class about this very thing, about the mercy and grace that we receive. But to really, really express mercy, we have to love it first. We need to recognize how much we need mercy. And again, this takes us from thinking about ourselves to thinking about the other person, to thinking about how much we received and how much I can give to others. We were talking this morning about Paul in class and about how he probably would have been a hard friend to keep. Because he was pretty, I don't know, radical. He'd be hard to hang out with. But with that aspect of Paul, there's also the part of Paul where he was so giving and so abundant with his grace giving that it was, you know, probably could make up for all the times where he was a little bit crazy or radical to be around. But this idea of loving mercy allows us to see how much we've received and give it to other people. Again, taking the focus off ourselves, not allowing pride to have a foothold in our life so that we can express it to others. And the second, or excuse me, the third is to walk humbly with God. I I underline, capitalize this idea of with because if we're walking humbly alone, that's all you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. You're walking humbly alone. And it all comes back to pride, right? Because this idea of walking humbly with God, because like Rob said, there's nothing we could outgive God with. We can't do that. There's nothing we can do to like surprise God and be like, man, I didn't know you were capable of that. Whatever that, that might be. 
But when we humble ourselves and submit ourselves and we walk humbly with God, a whole lot of things become possible in our lives. A whole lot of things that seemed impossible now become possible. Because this doesn't mean you become some kind of lifeless doormat, right? You're not just surrendering. We talked about that last year, this idea of surrendering to God's love. We use that word surrender, and it sounds negative, like you're just a, like a limp human being that has no business or no thoughts or anything, that you're just kind of humbly submitting. But no, humbly submitting is a posture of saying, God, I am with you. Please be with me. God, I am sur- surrendering. I am, I am saying you are greater than me. Help me to live and walk with you. Pride in self versus the pride in spirit. That's, a, that's what we're trying to get at today. Because when you look at the life of David, that guy makes a lot of mistakes too. Maybe even more than Saul. But the thing about David is that he always comes back and his pride is not in his own accomplishments. His pride in is what God does in his life. A big difference between pride and self and the pride and the spirit. Allow yourself to be proud in the spirit. Allow yourself to say, yes, I am good at this. Yes, I have a great family. I am very proud of what I've built in this world. But guess what? It's not because I'm so great. It's because God's so great, right? Nod your heads if you're with me. It's not because God, it's not because I'm so great. It's because God is so great. Because when you rely on yourself, you're going to end up just like Saul. In a situation where you look around and guess who he's surrounded by? Not too many friendly, friendly people. He's surrounded by the situation that he kind of got himself into. By choosing the flesh over the spirit, allowing pride in self rather than pride in God to win his life. So my prayer is that you see the example of Saul and see how you're not too far away from being like Saul. To see yourself as someone who says, you know what, I need to walk more humbly with God rather than with my own way of being, whatever that might be. Let's pray together. God, we come before you, and I really, uh, I'm speaking from a place of ignorance because a lot of these things I, I don't really understand. I don't know what true justice is. I don't know what true mercy is. And honestly, I don't know what true humility is. Uh, But God, I pray that we can live into that and and express that in our lives to see how you can illuminate those things more. Help us to seek justice for those who who are suffering or who are hurting, who aren't experiencing the grace of God, who are experiencing just pure darkness. Help us to be agents of justice, agents of peace. Help us to love mercy and help us to recognize just how much mercy we receive every day. And God, please help us to be humble and walk humbly with you. Help us to not have pride in ourselves, but rather to have pride in the Spirit. So just let me pray. Amen. If you have any needs at all, we want to invite you to come forward now. If you're just wondering how on earth you can walk humbly today, you're not sure what that looks like, I want to invite you to come forward and we're not perfect people. We, I don't have all the, like I just said, I'm speaking from a place of ignorance on a lot of these things. But when it comes to living in community, that ignorance becomes community together where we are trying to figure out together what God is leading us to do. Please invite yourself to be vulnerable within this community to say, you know what, I don't know, but I want to figure it out together. I want to live into this grace and this humility and this this mercy, this justice together. I don't know what it looks like right now, but it's going to be really cool when God shows us together. Let's all stand and sing.